Welcome to the Transform Your Teaching Podcast. The Transform Your Teaching Podcast is a service of the Center for Teaching and Learning at Cedarville University in Cedarville, Ohio. We seek to inspire higher education faculty to adopt innovative teaching and learning practices. Thanks for joining our conversation. Welcome back to Transform Your Teaching. I'm Jared Piles. I work at the Center for Teaching and Learning at Cedarville University in Cedarville, Ohio. Thanks for joining me today. We are continuing our series on serving students best in online teaching. We are gradually stepping through the community of inquiry, that educational framework that emphasizes the importance of social presence, cognitive presence, and teaching presence in online learning environments. So we are going to focus on the social presence aspect today, but we're really focusing more on the instructor social presence. And if you're not aware, and I talk about it, it seems like every episode it comes up at some point, I am working on my doctorate for educational technology through Boise State University. And one of my instructors, Dr. Patrick Lowenthal, is an instructional designer like me, and we just immediately hit it off. And I took several classes from him. He's on my committee for dissertation. He's just an all-around good guy. And one of his big fields of research is community of inquiry and, more specifically, social presence, especially instructor social presence. So I wanted to do an interview with him to get his thoughts on it. He talks a lot about how to balance the day-to-day of an instructor with being socially present in an online course, and he also shares some best practices. So here we go. Dr. Patrick Lowenthal, you are a well-published person to talk to on this aspect of community of inquiry and online teaching and social presence. But before we get there, we ask all of our guests to share what their philosophy of education is. So if you would, please do that. Definitely. Um, and it's, it's something that I've probably not, you know, thought about a lot lately. You know, it's something that when you go through tenure review or apply for jobs, you have to write out your philosophy of education. And so it's just something that um, I probably should reflect and think about whether mine's really changed over the years. But for me, when I approach education as how can I make it is authentic and relevant as possible for students, for learners. It doesn't really matter what I'm teaching. I want to try to find a way to um, get people to do things. And so rather than, let's say, learning about biology, I would want them to do what a biologist do. So for instance, even when it comes to you know teaching doctoral students research, I want them to get hands-on experience. So for me, it's always about trying to make um, centered around that relevant, authentic practice and really get students doing things. Now, how do you think you got to that point as an educator? Why do you think that's your philosophy? I, I My first two degrees are in religion and philosophy. And, you know, religion really is about reading and writing, you know, and it's really about studying texts. But it was actually when I started to get in the field of instructional design that this idea of like project-based learning or creating things became more important. What happens a lot in project-based kind of courses is you're encouraged to create things that you can use, create things that you can use on the job. 
that are useful or other people can use outside of the classroom. And that just grounded me in this idea that, you know, you don't need to necessarily just read something, write a paper that no one's ever going to read, or it's not going to make a difference. And so for me, it's really about just getting hands-on practice, um, creating and doing things that you can actually use and try out. And so I think it just came from studying instructional design and technology. I remember taking my first web development course and just, it was so neat to be able to create something that, um, that could like live outside of a class. And so I think that's really kind of where it all goes back to. Let's talk about that may intersect with um, social presence a bit. Maybe there's some connection there. Well, what, what first attracted you to really dive into social presence and community of inquiry? Because you seem to have latched on to that a bit in your research. I have, I have for sure. It, um, it, it sometimes, you know, I don't want to say embarrassing to admit, but I think that faculty often struggle when they're new to teaching online about how teaching is going to be different. And so when I started teaching online in 2003, I remember, you know, this was with dial-up internet. We didn't even have broadband where I lived. Um, I wasn't really that concerned about the students. I was more concerned about me, mm-hmm. me as an instructor. How would I feel and get the same satisfaction out of it? I will, uh, you know, how would I connect with students? And it was, it, was, it was a lot of me, 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 right? I was really concerned to use a community of inquiry to really the teaching presence. I wasn't sure what or how that looked like. And so, um, and one of the things that really I was interested too when I started teaching online is, you know, we, when you take an in-person face-to-face class, you, you size up your instructor by, you know, what they're wearing, how they act the hallway talk, this in-between stuff. And so I was really kind of interested in how I can let students get to know me as a person and, you know, in in a highly text-based asynchronous kind of courses back then, it was really important to me that they get a sense of who I am. And then as time grew on, I also wanted to know more about them and make things more um, student-centered. But it definitely, the way it all started was I was just really thinking about myself and my own needs and how I would use my energy, my passion, how any of that would come across in online discussion forums. And that's kind of the way it started. So you talk about a little bit about letting yourself be seen, uh, understood by your students, trying to replicate that. You know, the the biggest hurdle that with online education is there's this huge barrier in between of, of the distance you know, especially back in 2003, 2004, when it was, like you said, it was very limited, almost a, just the beginning of Web 2.0, where there's just starting the interaction between two parties and on the internet. Um, how did you, at that time, and, and this is part of the social presence aspect, how did you try to build rapport with your students in 2003 and, and now? In some ways, I probably the same. Um, but mm-hmm. when I think about back then, what I really, what I did a lot, and because it was like media, we, um, I remember there were courses where they would mail out DVDs or CD-ROMs of the, the little video clips, you know. But for the most part, it was kind of discouraged. That was just extra overhead. So video wasn't really an option in those early days, um, or at least the courses I was teaching. Um, and so a lot of it was through asynchronous discussion forms or email. That was the way you would interact with students. And so what I tried to do then early on was just to be 
hyper-responsive. Uh, um, and I've probably gotten bad at that as the years have gone by. But I wanted to be um, very interactive in the discussion forums. I wanted to um, really get to know who they were, you know. And so even when it comes to trying to think of creative ways to have icebreakers or this or that, I would also try then, and I still do, is I try to, you know, have one-on-one -on -one emails or, you know, phone calls, um, you know. But even that, I remember I would put my phone number in my syllabi all the time. And I remember one time a student was having a lot of problems and I was like, well, why didn't you call me? You know, and my number's there. And she was like, why well, didn't know I could do that? This is an online course. And so it's really about kind of setting up those clear expectations, um, being, you know, very interactive with students, um, trying to get to know and remember who they are. You know, my doctoral students, I will, you know, basically, ex and now that, you know, we're no longer in the office like we used to, but if I go in the office, I can see the last six cohorts of my doc students with a little bio they have. And so it helps me kind of remember, oh, where's Jared at, you know, or this or that. And so, um, so for me, it's trying to, what I did then, and I still do, was really trying to um, get to know my students as people. Um, you know, I, I've almost always taught mostly graduate students. And so there were times where they're either my age or they're older than me. And so it's something I wanted to treat them as adults. I wanted to treat them as individuals. Um, you know, when I first started teaching online, it was at Regis University, which is a Jesuit um, institution. And so it was also this idea of kind of recognizing this, um, honoring um, the whole person and, and, and you know, their lives outside of the classroom, you name it. Um, early on, I remember I got uh, I got into digital storytelling, and I still have a digital story out there that I'll include in my classes that talks about how I went from like two degrees in philosophy and religion to managing restaurants to you know basically being an uh, instructional designer and then faculty. Um, but it's about kind of telling their stories. So you know some of the social presence research will talk about things like um, self-disclosure. Self-disclosure, you know, and sharing stories about ourselves is a way that I think we build rapport. It's a way of trying to um, let down our guard, you know, because I remember when I first started teaching, I was, you know, I was I was young, I was uh, insecure, and and now I'm probably old and insecure, but, <laughs> you know, but, but I was really concerned with, um, I remember like my bio, the first time I started teaching online was like all about degrees and trying to, you know, make myself sound smart. And I remember halfway through the course, I created this digital story through the digital storytelling center um, in Denver. And I shared it in the class and a couple of students were like, wow, you're nothing like I thought. And so it was just this kind of contrast between our standard, oh, here are the degrees. This is what I like to research versus hey, this is a little bit about me, whether that's about, you know, whether you're talking about your kids, your dogs, you name it. And so I think it's, that's how I try to build rapport is I try to um, be hyper casual. It's just my demeanor. And I try to learn more about students and, and show a sincere interest in their lives. It's about making a personal connection. And also one of the best ways of doing that as an instructor is to reveal things about yourself you know, being willing to share, man, this week was terrible. So I'm, you know, I got sick or my dog got sick or, you know, my kids had soccer games each night this week. So I'm behind on your grading, you know, and exactly. 
with social presence, it's more of like letting that guard down and being willing to share. Definitely. I mean, there's, you know, I, because I research this stuff too, I like to geek out on things, but you know, social presence is often or traditionally is defined as, um, the sense that another person is real and then that they're there. And there's that sense of there-ness where, you know, and only of course you want them to, you know, get a sense that there is an instructor there, that it is a real person, but there's also this kind of, I think this part of being there is being supportive, um, to your students too. So it's, it's not just that they know that you're a real person, that you're smart or whatever, but that you are there, um, in that kind of supportive role to help them, you know, learn, learn the content, you know, stumble through whatever it might be. You've kind of hinted at this a bit about being, you know, hyper casual, but also, you know, being hyper communicative. Have you found like someone could be listening and saying, well, that's all great, but I've also, te- I'm also teaching three undergrad courses. Uh, I'm advising 20 students. Um, how have you found a balance between being readily available, making connection with online students, but also balancing the other parts of the career and the job and all the clubs and everything? Yeah, no, I, I think it's, um, in some ways I don't balance it well at all, but, but in other ways, what you, where my mind at least first went to is that I am super casual, but that doesn't work for everyone. And so I don't want to suggest that. And, and I've had people, you know, so I don't like to be called Dr. Lowenthal. Um, but I know many colleagues who do, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, you've earned that degree. You've earned that title. Um, I've also had people tell me, well, you know, you're a white male. It's easy for you to just kind of, you have privilege that, that allows you to, for instance, be so casual or, you know, um, this or that, or, you know, my wife will, you know, at times see things I wear and she's like, you're wearing that to work, <laughs> you know, but she's like, I couldn't get away with that. And, and so I do want to recognize there is privilege and, um, that I, that I don't think I always, um, recognize or, um, but I do want to say that in the, another way that I'm privileged is I don't teach huge classes. So, you know, I, I was in a meeting today where three of my colleagues and, um, across the university, they're teaching like a hundred to 300 different students this semester where I have like three classes that have like 12 students each. So it's like what I can do with 12 students is very different than if I was teaching a hundred. Um, and so I also recognize too, certain courses, yeah, if you're teaching a hundred person online course, the way you do things has to change some, you know, I think of it as we only have so much bandwidth. And so, you know, if you are teaching, you know, if you're used to maybe putting 25 hours a week into teaching, well, you have to use that time the best way that you can. But for me, you know, I do try to, there's certain things that I try to do, um, regardless of what I'm teaching, you know, I try to reach out to students, um, individual emails, you know, once or twice throughout the semester, I try to give video feedback, but once again, these are things that work when you have 12 students, right? If you have a hundred, you know, or even to your point where back where I talked about privilege, I think sometimes also teaching undergrads, I've heard people are like, no, that 18 year old needs to call me Dr. Lowenthal. They, the rules are a little different. And so for me, because I'm, you know, teaching graduate students who, you know, are, you know, my age, I'm very comfortable with, um, with the way I interact with them. But, you know, that, that balance, I think that, um, recognizing that one, not, you know, sometimes I'll describe as not every student needs a virtual hugs. Right. And so, so I, I do want to balance in my courses, some of the social stuff. I don't necessarily try to, let's say, have three online discussions every week, 
you know, where they, you know, so I try to, you know, recognize the ebb and flow of a course. I also, for me, I found a couple of years ago, and this was probably, probably more like 2008. So it was more than a couple of years ago. I started using, um, Adobe connect, you know, in synchronous sessions. And so I tried to sprinkle those in. And so rather than, you know, let's say doing synchronous sessions every week, I try to have three or four throughout the semester. And so that is something where it's it's optional. They're not required in my courses, but that's an example of where even a little bit of some of these things can go a long way. So you don't necessarily have to every week be doing all of this stuff. Besides time and let's say someone who's undergrad, the amount of students that they would have to either connect with in some way or another to establish a social presence, are there other barriers? And if so, what are they and what have you seen? I mean, my guess is there's probably definitely um, some cultural barriers too. Um, you know, you could have um, even just, you know, let's say some students who, you know, are from China, they might have different ways of interacting. And so sometimes they don't want to, for instance, say, call me Patrick. They're, you know, it's no, it's Dr. Lowenthal. Or there's just, so I think there's understanding your audience, I think is important um, because even to the point where, you know, time, there's time for the instructor, but there's time for students too. And so back to when I talked about making things authentic and relevant is sometimes too much virtual hugs or too much of this kind of social stuff can really um, not work for all students. So I think it's, it's understanding um, your group, your, your, um, your own barriers that you have to work with. But I think it's understanding the students and kind of what makes them tick. So, you know, if I'm working with doing faculty development, faculty, you know, they might have, have the time or interest in doing some of it. They want to get right into it, you know, or, or us with our doctoral students, they have busy lives and careers, you know? So some of them, when I've done research and interviewed them, they don't feel the need or desire to want to connect with all their peers in their courses because they got a busy life. So they're more transactional where they just want to suit up, learn it, get the credit and move on, you know? And so I think it's um, understanding your students. So, you know, there's some, I often will do a pre-course survey. And so I try to learn, you know, about students, maybe what barriers do they have that semester that I don't know about? Um, I think that there's, you know, other barriers for some of this stuff, for instance, is I know I have colleagues who English is their second or third language. And so they're insecure about speaking and using video. And so I think it's, there's lots of things to kind of recognize. Where do you feel comfortable as an instructor engaging this way and that it some things might work better for some instructors where others you know might want to do that five minute phone call you know with students um so i think it's recognizing what works for you as well as what works for students and it helps when you once you've been teaching a group you know um long enough at a certain institution you start to just know you know um what what most students lives are but even that can be limiting because Sometimes you'll just assume all your students are the same, where it's it's recognizing they are different and every student has their own unique needs. And so just trying to balance that. All right, let's do a shift here a little bit and let's talk about some, you already gave us a little bit of some, but what are some best practices for establishing and maintaining a social presence in an online course? Definitely. I, th I think that, you know, kind of this goes back to how do, how do you show someone that you're real in there? You know, and so, you know, it starts with interaction. Um, you know, you have to have that interaction back and forth. So students have to feel a sense that you're there, that you're not absent, that you're present. Um, I think that um, 
for me, I, I try to use a mixture of audio and video. I try to show my personality in the course, the way I design things. Even, even, you know, you'll see people talking more about how do you make a welcoming syllabus, you know, because sometimes syllabi can just feel contractual, you know, and you know, here's the terms of service where, how do you kind of make it, um, more inviting? I, I went back and I looked at the language that I used about the accessibility center. Um, we, ours is called education access under the EEC and the language I had, and this was given me at some point by someone, but it was so like, you have to prove you have a disability from just to help you. And, and so I tried to rewrite that in a much more inviting way of saying, Hey, if you have, you know, a disability or some challenges or something I need to know, let me know. But you might also reach out to the AAC. So I think that there's ways that we can write our text that sound inviting. I think there's ways that we can disclose, whether it's weekly announcements, whether it's, um, you know, some of those one-on-one emails, um, you know, and, and uh, even when students maybe, even how we grade, I think we can some to give a more inviting um, language where, you know, and that's why I like audio and video feedback because they can hear in your voice where sometimes it's just so easy to jump to the grade or see the red ink, if you will, you know, and, and that it just, you know, you don't feel that the instructor actually did think you did a really good job. And so I think it's about just um, making sure that, you know, students feel supported that through your language, through the way you design things. So, you know, audio video is a great way, you know, whether it's flip voice thread, those are great tools out there that people can use thinking about, you know, how we grade, how our rubrics are set up. Um, but even when a student is kind of dropped off, reaching out to them and not just in this, oh, you're going to fail, but like, hey, what's going on? Can I help you? I think that COVID helped us all kind of realize that, wow, we all have lots going on in our lives. And so when when a student is um, you know, maybe not being successful in the course, trying to better understand why that is. And, you know, when you can, you know, make some adjustments on the fly. And so it's that kind of being responsive. Um, I mean, I can think of so many other things I've seen people do, you know, use Twitter, social media. Um, uh, you know, I've seen people create discord channels or use Slack, um, for kind of things to take it out of the LMS. I think that's really just about how do you interact? How do you get them interacting? And that's the other thing. I, a lot of times I'll think about instructor social presence, but it's it's equally important getting students to work together and collaborate. So, you know, even though I do think, you know, um, the teacher and the instructor has a certain position, you have to give grades. So there's a power differential, but it's really important for students to be interacting with each other. And this is easier with smaller courses as well, but it's about how do you get students um, working on projects together? And I know that your group work is hard. And I know that some instructors just want to avoid it completely, but um, because of the problems that can arise, but I think it's really important to get students interacting with each other, getting to know each other, creating, co-authoring things. And so, you know, there's lots of ways that I try to integrate that type of stuff in my courses as well. Yeah. To go back to your point on grading, I found it to be extremely successful as someone who teaches freshman level English and writing to give video or audio feedback. And I will go through and read their drafts for the first time and record it and read through it so they can hear where I'm messing up because their sentences aren't flowing well. And it, like you said, it puts a voice to all those 
notes and the red ink or the annotations that are in Canvas that if you just see them once without any kind of voice or video, it seems very harsh and very, you know, it's also, you know, the, inevitably what happens in an English course like that is a student will come back and say, well, what did you mean by this when you put this on my paper? So yep. then to, they can refer back to a video and say, oh, okay, he means this. And I don't have to, I had off those questions at the past because I've got the video feedback for them. Definitely. And, and I think that, you know, there are different ways, like I've done that, um, where I'll give audio feedback, where I've even shared the audio feedback in the course for other students to see it. Because what happens is that the teaching presence part of the community of inquiry, that teaching stuff so often um, is done, you know, behind the scenes. And so students don't see all the work the instructor does. And so anytime we can kind of be a little more transparent with that, um, you know, I think can be very helpful. And so even having students turn in work in the discussion forums so other students can see their work. But I think that, um, you know, when you can't audio and video feedback, but then you run into these, you know, you're teaching a course of a hundred, let's say, all right, well, you maybe then you pick three exemplars and you give video feedback on that for the whole class. So I think there are different ways um, that these things can be done. I also started having students give each other video feedback when they peer review and do things. And so um, that's still, you know, students still struggle giving each other feedback. And so, you know, um, ideally, you know, you would help them with a rubric or give them some training or, you know, scaffolding. But, um, but I think students can be um, great sources of, you know, colleagues or teachers in their courses by helping each other. That was Dr. Patrick Lowenthal from Boise State University, one of my advisors and instructors at Boise State. I've really enjoyed taking his courses as a student, not only because of the content, but because of his desire to make a social connection with his students. It really does make a difference from the student perspective. When you have that distance between you and your instructor, that you don't have that face-to-face interaction, you don't have that face-to-face help that you can easily rely on when you see the instructor before, during, after class, or even during office hours or around campus. Making that social connection with them to know that you're a real person and that you're readily available to help them and that you are hearing them and communicating with them, it really does make all the difference. So that'll do it for us on this episode of Transform Your Teaching. Join us next time as we continue to explore the different elements of how we can serve our students in online teaching. Thanks for listening. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Transform Your Teaching podcast. Please subscribe or follow us on your preferred podcast platform. For more information, you can email us at ctlpodcast at cedarville.edu please consider subscribing to our blog, Focus, found at cedarville.edu forward slash focus blog.